This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Deborah Spark, author of five novels, including The Pretty Girl, Good for the Jews, and her latest, Unknown Caller. She teaches fiction at Colby College and at the MFA program at Warren Wilson College. Her novel, Unknown Caller, tells the story of two sides of a marriage that fell apart after only five months that left the wife, Liesel, bitter and the husband, Joel, perplexed. Liesel leaves their home in Maine abruptly and travels to Europe. It is only years later when Joel discovers he has a daughter and things come to a head when Liesel's harassing phone calls abruptly stop. We began the discussion, which was recorded on Skype, talking about what questions were pestering Spark so much the novel was born. I was thinking about how people, once they're married and then divorced, hate each other so, so, so much. Um, And I was thinking in particular, actually, of three really crazy marriages that I knew. And one in particular was nuts, where the ex-wife was Uh, calling in the middle of the night, like my character, sort of screaming at her ex-husband, demanding money, um, doing really, really crazy things. Um, And then the other marriage I was thinking of actually was a a close relative whose marriage ended after a handful of months. And that was completely surprising to him, um, most of all. And then another story I heard of a marriage that ended really briefly. So I, I was curious about how one can go into something as serious as marriage, and then quickly realize it's the wrong thing, um, and quickly end up at a point of incredible hate after presumably a, a point of incredibly incredible love. So that's what I was thinking about. Taken from this idea that you saw crazy marriages around you, how did that then translate into this marriage and this novel? When I look at people and and they're on the tail end of a dark marriage, I always wonder what came before, sort of step by step. So I like the idea of going backward in time to figure out what happened, because it seems the story behind um, a breakup is so interesting. I mean, the story of how people got together, too, is interesting. So I thought I could start with the the story of the breakup and go to the story of the get together, which is is the case in this book. But um, the characters end up driving the the drama pretty much because uh, they are so particular and want in some ways such different things out of out of their marriage um, and out of their lives. So the the initial premise of the novel is you have these people that were married. You have Joel and Liesel who met on vacation and then married and lived in Maine. And their marriage was only lasted five months, although they were together for a while before they got married. Not a significant amount of time. And she left him. And her view was that he was just a, a terrible, mean person. And he was just offended that she got up and left one day. So I I feel like what the whole novel is saying is, in a way, is can you ever know someone? Are you asking also, though, that people are different to depending on who is in their life? So Liesl was different to Joel as she was to her daughter. Yes. Yeah. I I was thinking about identity uh, throughout the book. 
And it's funny because a friend of mine who has read all my books, she said, that's always an issue in your work. And I'm like, it, it is. But then I went back and I thought about my books and I thought, yeah, it, that is always an issue. And I don't know if that's because I'm a twin, um, but I... I've always been interested in the fact that if you see people at certain moments of the life, their life, you would read them one way. And if you saw them another way, you would read them and judge their character in an entirely different way. You know, if you're having a screaming fight with your husband, you know, you look like a, a crazy loon. If you're teaching college and you're being nice to your students, you look like another way. If you're holding a baby, you know, you just are, look different at different parts of your life. Um, but you are obviously are. A coherent whole. So I think um, Liesl very much, you know, has problems with, with her husband. I, I think her husband is, is baffled by the fact that she left and, and has baffled by her, her view of him. It would never occur to him uh, that she felt as she did, um, just because his own personality, when he's brusque, he's just brusque. He's not, he's not understanding how, how she's registering, registering it. So her daughter, she keeps her daughter from Joel. Um, he doesn't even know since they were only married five months and then she left. He doesn't find out he has a daughter with Liesl until she's five. And then uh, Liesl won't basically let him see her. She just doesn't want him to have anything to do with her life. What, what do you think that's about for Liesl? I think it's she knows that his family and he thinks she's crazy. And he th- she thinks, rightly, actually, that he will try to get sole custody, that he will portray himself as what he is, which is a very, um, you know, sort of upstanding uh, doctor who's lived for years in the same place. And they'll look at how flighty and some of the very poor choices she's made in terms of dragging her daughter here, there and everywhere. And she, she's afraid of losing her daughter. Um, and she can't imagine that um, that Joel, given the way she thinks he thinks about her will let her continue to be a mother. And she also knows she doesn't have any resources financially. So if there were a legal fight, she's not going to be able to put up the money she would need to put up. It's interesting because we do see Joel gets remarried to another woman, Daniela, and she is privy to everything that happens. I mean, Joel doesn't, he isn't straightforward with her about revealing everything about his past life, but she does eventually learn about all of it, especially when the phone calls start. And so it made me think a lot about, you know, when you're talking about identity, how you can maybe be a bad husband to one person and a good husband to another. Was he a good husband to Daniela? In my head, yes. In my head, he was a good husband to Liesl. He just had a personality that didn't work with everyone. In my head, Daniela, just the things that get to Liesl, Daniela just ignores it or lets it roll off her back or it doesn't, she's just a more peaceable person and I think a more accepting person and has <clears throat> broader range of, of what she accepts as behavior. The Again, the, the people who I was thinking of for this book, I mean, the, the three marriages I looked at, all three people are incredibly happy marriages. And I think all three people, um, and I'm talking about the women now are, are really flexible. They're just, they don't, they don't get too upset. You know, they're, they're very clear and they just, if, if someone is a little snappish, it's like, Oh, that's their stuff. You know, they don't, they don't get worked up about, about things. Um, so I, but I also think it's easier to be a good partner to someone who's more stable. Um, so I think that uh, all of these people ended up with a partner who was more, much more stable. 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Deborah Spark, author of the novel Unknown Caller. Our interview was recorded on Skype. I'm curious about how we remember the dead in general. Um, Do you find that we can rearrange? If you find something out about people who are around you who are no longer and you had one view of them, and then maybe you learn some facts later about them that don't mesh with that. Do you think that we're capable of rearranging that? Or do you think that as a safety mechanism for ourselves, we can't do that? Because that, those kind of questions do come up. Yeah, that's interesting. And I'm thinking it now, not in terms of my book, but I just happened to be reading um, last night, Calvin Trillin's Remembering Denny where the man, uh, Denny, who is someone that Calvin Trillin has gone to Yale with in the 50s, commits suicide, and then a whole bunch of people get together and start to talk about him. And what they realize is none none of them knew him. And then they start to realize no one really knew him. And they sort of bringing in little bits of information. I'm only halfway through the book. And everything they're sort of learning is in contrast with the kind of golden boy picture they had of him before. One thing I think in my own life is the people who I'm closest to who have died, um, with the exception of my father, I guess my grandparents, they died sort of tragically and early and young. So there's always a little bit of enshrining them, right? You know, you like because they died young, they get to be perfect people and fantastic people. And it's it is true that when someone contradicts that or adds a complicating thing, it's hard to hard to take in. I mean, in my book, uh, obviously the daughter, Insia, gets some information that she can't take in. Um, but I think that's a function of her age. It's too threatening to take it in. I have an idea that as an older woman, she may be able to take things in. She's also traumatized by other things that happened to her. So um, she's less flexible in, in her view of her mother than other people might be. But I also think like Joel can't take in certain things, um, although he sort of almost does at the end, you know, to try to take in what was good about Liesl. I mean, there are occasional moments where he remembers good things and why he, he loved her. But it helps him to move on to demonize her. Right. You know, she was just this bitch who left him, you know, very abruptly and um, it makes him feel better about himself or it certainly makes him not weigh what part he had in the the end of the relationship if she's just the difficult one. So your your novel has so many backdrops. You have Maine, you have London, you have Paris, you have Copenhagen. And I saw in the back of the book that you got to visit many of these places. When you started this book, did you know it was going to be so geographically diverse? And then how did you end up you know, handling the research for that? Well, I am very lucky um, in that the school where I teach, Colby College, they have these grants, these $3,000 grants uh, for uh, travel and research. So if you apply for one, you pretty much can get it, or at least or at least in the years I've been there, they're pretty much sort of offered out. It's a fund of money that's always there. So I've always I frequently tried to pl- apply for one. And with previous books, um, like one of my books was set in Barbados. My second novel was set in Barbados. So I used the travel grant to go down there. And then for a while, I was working on a book that I sort of abandoned on um, toy theaters in London. 
Um, and I went to London for that. And then I just thought, I want to travel. And so I, I did very purposely set this in a lot of different places because I wanted to go there. And what I think is a funny story is the last story is the Copenhagen story, which was the book was going to end in um, Lithuania. I was supposed to go to Lithuania to teach. And it was very important to me that the novel not end in America. I wanted it to end somewhere in Europe. And then the Lithuanian um, thing fell through. And I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do? Because I don't have enough money to send myself to, to Europe or to pay for a trip myself. So I said to my son, where do you want to go? And he said, Iceland. I said, oh, I don't want to go to Iceland. But I've always wanted to go to like Norway or Sweden or Denmark or something like that. And then I thought sort of very abruptly, because the deadline was only a week away for the, the grant, um, what if I make my characters young filmmakers in Denmark? That would be fun. That, would, you know, that sort of popped into my head. Oh, not, not in Denmark, in, in, in that area. And then I actually called or emailed the film commissioners of several different countries, you know, sort of to ask about coming and meeting people. And the one who got back, who was most generous and was going to set me up with a ton of filmmakers and introduce me to people was this man named Ulrich Jorgensen. And so that's why we went to Copenhagen. He was amazing. And he introduced me to tons of people. I went all over the place meeting these young filmmakers. And he even sort of entertained my husband and son when I was off doing interviews. He took them out to the country. He had us all over to his house. He took my son on a, like a ropes course with his son. So it's sort of amazing and, and incredibly generous uh, since essentially all he knew was, you know, I was an American writer. I think he looked up my my website, but, you know, didn't really know who I was. So that's how Copenhagen got got floated in there. Yeah, I find that interesting. There's, you know, some people write stuff that is very autobiographical and some people write to learn things that they don't know. Were there elements of your life that you did include in this book? Yes. Yeah. But you know what I was going to say in terms of the people life, you know, don't know. I, I, I did a lecture actually Orrin Wilson not long ago on research. And I was thinking about writers like Laurie Moore, who do, do not appear to, who are fantastic, who does not appear to particularly research and seems to be drawing out of her, not writing autobiographically, but clearly writing very heavily out of her own life's experience. And I was thinking like a writer like Colin McCann and Let the Great World Spin or um, a book before there called this, this Side of Darkness, where he said at one point, he, it's almost like he goes back to college each time he writes a book because he learns so much. In terms of me and using my own life, I didn't use my own autobiography, but I did take these experiences that these three friends had, and I gave them to other characters. And, and often it was just because someone told me such an amazing story. I was like, that is too delicious. I cannot leave it alone. For instance, there's a scene in which uh, Liesel is in uh, St. Paul's and she gets kissed by the Pope and then he comes back and kisses her again. And that did happen to my friend. And for her, it was just this amazing, amazing experience. And it did happen when she was with this first husband who, who turned out to have a very, very questionable personality. And she did tell me, you know, aspects of his her story. And I did use all of that. And yet she is nothing like my Liesl character. So I feel like you can take events from other people's life. You don't want to take them, you know, then you, could, you don't want to be hurting feelings. So in, in that way, there was a lot that was autobiographical. In terms of just the fact that it's uh, male-female relationships are a struggle, I think, you know, that is 
you know, has been my experience. So I think that's, that's in the book, too. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Deborah Spark, author of the novel Unknown Caller. Our interview was recorded on Skype. So when you use the, these friends' experiences, do you ask their permission or ask forgiveness later? Do you let them read it? What's what's their response to that? I tell them, the first person who I was using, I, I said I wanted to use it, and I actually asked if I could read his whole divorce file, which is incredibly fascinating, especially since I'd never seen a divorce file. Um, the other person who's a family member knows, knows I'm doing it. Um, he, the, the person whose divorce file... I read, I did show him the first chapter of my novel was on a um, website called narrative. So I, I told his wife and him that it was there and I'm not sure they ever read it. And then the person, the same Paul's person, I, I gave her the chapter that was, you know, based on her experience. Um, and the one who's a relative, I just think he knows I'm doing it. Um, and I assume he'll be okay with it. Um, because everyone in my family has in some version seen some version of their experiences in my fiction. So what was your experience reading the divorce file? I mean, did you look at your friend differently after? What what did it spark in you? Well, it didn't make me look at my friend differently because it was so much about how very nutty this woman was. I mean, at one point she was writing Mitterrand to ask Mitterrand to, you know, interfere in her divorce case. So she was not well, you know, seriously not well. It did make it hard for me to imagine how she possibly could have been someone he married. And I did get some of the backstory on, on that. And I was still confused. Like he, he must've been at a very, very different point in his life than the point I saw him at, that he could have possibly made a choice that seemed so obviously wrong, maybe from day one. Um, and I had a feeling he knew pretty early on it was wrong. So I, I, I sort of wondered what was in his head. So that I never explored and wasn't clear on. But it, it was a divorce file that went between two countries. Um, and one of the things that's interesting is um, there's actually a whole uh, child abduction sort of issue that comes up if one person goes to another country with a child. So at one point, I may be misremembering it, I think the lawyer is asking my friend, if he wants to pursue, you know, essentially accusing her of abduction, which he, he didn't want to do, or I didn't, as I remember from the paperwork. Um, so it was very complicated. Obviously, he wanted to see his child. She, she was making these conditions. You have some death scenes in the novel, and you write about death, and you characterize it as a thing that is hard to do, meaning as if it's achieving an accomplishment if a character manages to die. Can you talk about this? Yeah, well, actually, when you asked me if it was autobiographical, and I said it wasn't, that wasn't really true. The The descriptions of the deaths are the deaths of my father and the deaths of my sister and the moment of my sister's death, actually. And I just happened to have a very good friend die last week. And I think it is hard to do. I mean, just getting out of this world is hard. And no one does it easily. I was thinking about how we were all holding her hand. And at that point, you know, when she's, she's just going to die. And you like, there's always been a part of me. It was like, let's get this over with. It's too horrible, the suffering, but you also want the person to be there as, as long as possible. And it's just, it seems to me, unless you die in your sleep, there's just so much pain and suffering to sort of finally get yourself, you know, over that border into, into death. And something I think about a lot. 
um, and worry about how's my death going to be? You know, how's my husband's death going to be? I said, sometimes I want it all not to be as incredibly painful as the deaths I've been close to. So you said um, earlier uh, when you were thinking about identity because you have a twin. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, it's not in any way conscious, but I think like, why would I always be writing about identity? Because I was thinking in my first book is about someone who literally changes their identity. And uh, in my third novel, there is someone who also changes his identity. I wasn't even conscious I had done that. I mean, I can't even remember in the first novel why they do it. In the third novel, it's to, to hide a really ugly Nazi past that he doesn't want revealed. Um, so I, I think it may be also because I'm interested in the idea of getting to be a different person than the person you are. I think, and, and maybe that's what writing is, right? Like I get to be someone other than who I am. And especially when you get to my age in life, because I'm 54, I was like, wait, I don't want to be this person. I don't want to be a person who has done this and this, and I don't want to have had these faults. And I, I want, I want to somehow be different than I am, or I want my good parts, but I, I want more good parts. You know, I want, I, I don't want my faults uh, and flaws. So, um, and also this thing that I said before of this, you know, issue of your identity not being entirely stable, um, that you can seem and can be a very different person with very different people. Um, I think, you know, the person I am with my husband is so different than, and my, my son is so different than the person I am with my students or my best friend or, you know, all these people. And I, I feel like certain people turn you into your best self and that's the identity you most want. And then, you know, other people, not so. They turn you into your worst self. Um, and that's the identity you want to shed if you can. And so how does having a twin impact that? Well, one thing I think we're always, we're very close. We're always saying, like, I mean, this is terrible, but we both think we're unattractive. And then we look at each other. And that's, you know, that's complicated. Like, and I feel like, oh, what woman in her 50s doesn't think she's unattractive. That can be a little weird. But I also think sometimes people think, oh, how cool it would be to be a twin. It'd be like a mirror back on yourself. And I don't think it's that. Um, I, I mean, she's a very, very different person than I am. Although I think we feel sort of unusually close. Although I felt unusually close to, to all my siblings. But I can tell my sister anything. And also seeing how different we became. I mean, we always were different. But, you know, we grew up in the same household, went to the same high school, we went to the same college there, you know, our sort of past diverged, but that's a lot of both nature and nurture that were the same. Um, and then to see, you know, what we do with that um, is interesting. And in some ways, I think we both have each other's road not followed in so far as I think she would have liked to be a writer. And she uh, works with the homeless. And, you know, I, I would have liked to have been a do-gooder. I would have liked to, um, be kind and generous in my professional life in the way that she is. Because writing is so selfish. Well, a little, you know how Joan Didion says uh, at the beginning of why I write, she has this thing. She goes, I, 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 you know, that's, that's what writing is. You know, me, 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 listen to me. This is what I have to say. This is what I have to put into the word. I don't think other aspects of writing are selfish, um, but I think there is a little, you know, you're self-expressing. That's a little, selfish you're trying to communicate but what you're trying to communicate is what you want want to communicate I think other aspects of writing aren't selfish I don't think teaching is selfish or being in a writer's community I think is often you know the chance to be very generous with people 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is Deborah Spark, author of the novel Unknown Caller. Our interview was recorded on Skype. Well, can you read a passage from a writer that speaks to you as an author that maybe influenced you? Yeah, I, I thought I'd read um, a last little bit of So Long, See You Tomorrow. Have you read that book? Do you yeah. know that book? Yes, I've read it a few times. Yeah, I've read it several times and taught it several times. So um, this is at the very end. And the only thing you need to know, it's just a a long paragraph, um, is the author, William Maxwell, is uh, talking about uh, something that happened earlier in his life. And his mother died um, in the influenza epidemic in the early 1900s. And when he she died, his father, who was grief stricken, had a habit of walking back and forth uh, in the uh, house, uh, in the living room, just pacing with him. Um, So this happens much later in his life, uh, Maxwell's life. After six months of lying on an analyst's couch, this too was a long time ago, I I relived that nightly pacing with my arm around my father's waist. From the living room into the front hall, then turning past the grandfather's clock and on into the library and from the library into the living room, from the library into the dining room where my mother lay in her coffin. Together we stood looking down at her. I meant to say to the fatherly man who was not my father, the elderly Viennese, another exile, thick glasses and a Germanic accent. I meant to say, I couldn't bear it. But what came out of my mouth was, I can't bear it. This statement was followed by a flood of tears, such as I hadn't ever known before, not even in my childhood. I got up from the leather couch, and I somehow knew, with his permission, left his office in the building and walked down 6th Avenue to my office. New York City is a place where we can weep on the sidewalk in perfect privacy. Other children could have borne it, have borne it. My older brother did. Somehow, I couldn't. Do you want to talk about why you chose this? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I just love the book. I think it's one of the most beautiful books ever written. But I also often think about that sentence about walking down the street um, in New York and sobbing and no one noticing you, both because of the times I've sobbed when no one's noticed me, but also the times I've seen someone else sobbing just on the street and what you think when you know, oh my goodness, you know, someone's suffering and you know, they probably don't want you to go up and hug them, although occasionally I have or have said something. Um, and just the power of that, um, but also that he can't get over it. Um, and he, he admits it, that, that he, he, this late in life, can be sort of brought to the same kind of tears as if the emotion was, was right there. Like it's still so, so alive in him. And I think I would say um, with my younger sister's death, that that would be very much true of all of us, that um, that we could be very much, you know, at any moment sort of brought to, to tears about all that, that had happened. Um, and I also just like it because it's so emotionally true. And I think what I admire in work more than anything is just incredible emotional truth. And emotional truth in particular to the things that are hardest, you know, so love and death um, with maybe work on the side, but love and death mostly. Can you read something that you wrote that was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft? Bertie had been living in London for three months when she first touched a dead body. It happened on her Thursday afternoon shift. She went into room 210 to check on Dr. Jan Liss, a neurologist who was dying in the very hospital where he once and Bertie now worked. 
He sent me my first patients back when I started out, she heard a male voice say. On the other side of the ceiling track curtain, a short man in blue scrubs was sitting at the foot of Dr. Liss's bed. He shook his head, clearly broken up. The surgeon, if that was what he was, was talking to an older woman, Liss's wife. Bertie couldn't remember her name. Pamela, Prudence, peace something. The wife nodded as if in agreement with his words, then said evenly, as if it were an ordinary enough response, I think Jan just stopped breathing. A second younger woman sitting at a table in the room's corner, the daughter probably, looked up from the book on her lap. The wife said, more amazement than upset in her voice, Jan just died. I'm so sorry, Bertie said and left the room. Dr. Liss is dead, Bertie told Kathleen, the ward supervisor, a broad blonde woman with a face reddened and roughened by old acne stars. I w- what do I do? Bertie had been told at some point in her training, of course, but she'd lost that file in the hard drive of her brain just when she needed it most. To lose one parent, Mr. Forthing, may be regarded as a misfortune. To lose both looks like carelessness. Of all things to flash through her brain, nursing school lessons were gone. Not so Oscar Wilde. What was the matter with her? Do you, do you want to comment on that? Well, that is um, my father's death, but as seen from... Uh, a nurse instead of me. I would be the daughter sitting in the room reading in the corner. And I, so it was difficult to write, obviously, because it was my father's death. I also wanted the Bertie character to have that little bit of humor at the end, mostly because I like things that have some humor in them. But also, I interviewed some nurses to talk to them a little bit about uh, the first time they handled the dead body. Um, and one of them was talking to me about just sort of how flustered she got. She hadn't done it before and an older nurse needed to explain to her how to do it. And it's just how, how striking it was when it was your very first time. Where do you write? Different places, most often in my office, sometimes in coffee shops, sometimes my office up at Colby. And what do you do and where do you go when you want to get away from writing? No, I was thinking about that question. I am always trying to get to my writing. It seems my whole life is not writing. So mostly I'm trying to get to it. Um, But when I like breaks, I like to go for walks with female friends or sometimes go exercise. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I read it out loud to my husband, but he doesn't give me feedback. He'll just listen. And if there's something really stupid, he'll tell me. In terms of showing the work itself, I have two writer friends, one's named Gail Donovan, and one's named Elizabeth Searle, and they've been reading my work uh, first First off. I've had different writers groups over the years, but these are the two I've been showing it to lately. And how have you dealt with rejection? Poorly, <laughs> but better as the years go on. Um, as a younger woman, one of the things I used to do, which I think was a good idea, is if something big got rejected, like a novel, I'd just make some possibility for myself, like I'd go out and get a book review assignment or um, some sort of you know, easy enough to get publishing opportunity. Um, And now that I'm older, I'm just trying to have the long view and just think, okay, you know, so far my books have come out sooner or later. Most of my work has come out sooner or later, maybe not in the time I wanted to. I think of a little like my friends who have miscarried as I did many times before they have a baby or have some sort of pregnancy loss. I think, you know what? Everyone I know got, had a baby eventually. They just didn't get it on uh, the calendar they would have liked. So I feel a little like that about my career. You know, it might not be on my calendar that I like. It might not all happen the way I want, but I just have to let it go. And what is your favorite word? Oh, ruckus. 
And I was talking with my sister about why I like ruckus. And I thought because it puts a playful spin on what can be serious. Like a ruckus is an uproar, maybe about actually a fight or an argument people had. But if you come in and say afterwards, oh, we had that little ruckus the other day, it sort of minimizes it and it makes it less um, painful. And I like the playfulness of it, the idea that a ruckus is something like, I don't know, Max and his wolf suit would do, um, rather than, I don't know, Trump when he, he has access to nuclear weapons. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Deborah Spark, author of the novel Unknown Caller. Our interview was recorded on Skype. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.